Welcome to Gold Digging, where we dig for nuggets of gold from friends and associates of Stephen Webster brand. I'm uh, quite excited, actually, and we have a great guest. So our guest today is um, jewellery editor, journalist, uh, curator, and uh, author of uh, four books uh, to date, but uh, soon to be five, uh, with the imminent release of her latest book, uh, The New Stone Age. So uh, welcome to Gold Digging, Carol Walton. Thank you, Stephen. Really nice to be here. Yeah, no, Virtually. it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think because we are in a, a COVID sort of a 19 situation, well, tell us a bit about where, where you are and where you're, where you're situated. It looks very nice there. Well, I'm, I'm hunkered down in my office in London. Um, where I am working. I have all my books here, all my research, all the things that I like to have around me. So I didn't want to isolate anywhere else. So I'm isolating in my, in my office. Yeah, nice. Okay, good. Well, you know, we're, um, I'm in my kitchen, stroke, everything, same as, uh, in a way, as everybody has made do with the multiple use of rooms that we probably thought we would never do. Mm -hmm. So um, the new Stone Age, um, your new book, Yes. Dealing with things, uh, crystal, living with crystals, which I think, uh, you know, crystals and, and quartzes, et cetera, have been very much part, I suppose, of my, my jewellery uh, career. Um, so I'm very, very excited about your new book and, um, and the chance to talk to you about it today. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to that. Um, just before we, we touch on to all things crystal, I just wanted to, you know, just to talk a little bit about your time as jewellery editor of Vogue, mm -hmm. of British mm -hmm. Vogue, of which you have been the jewellery editor for many years. And I think in that time, with your extraordinary kind of passion and devotion for jewellery, you, you sort of, I think, shifted uh, the focus of, of, you know, what was allocated to fine jewellery in an editorial sense uh, to give it much more of the coverage, I think that you certainly and, I, and myself were uh, agree that it deserves that um, you really push for that, and I and you you managed it, and um, so good for you. But I think, what do you think were the sort of key elements in the last period, I could say 10, 20 years or so, that yeah. have sort of elevated jewelry into something that's become so much more important for a woman's and and a man's wardrobe. Well, I think the first thing that really um, started kind of shaking up the jewellery industry was the fashion brands coming in in a major way. Someone like Victoire de Castellan at Dior, you know, she really was a trailblazer. I think you can look at jewellery before Victoire and after Victoire in the way that um, up until then, I think, you know, we were fine jewellery, we were costume jewellery. Um, and here came this woman making pieces that you could wear um, precious fine jewellery all day long that looked like costume. She really sort of turned it around. And um, I think um, by the, the fashion brands coming in like that and designing it with a kind of sense of freedom meant that um, all the um, fine jewellery, more sedate fine jewellery houses who really classified diamonds, sapphires, rubies and emeralds, the big four, as precious jewels, um, suddenly had to shake up their design, shake up the stones they were using, and look at the way women wanted to wear jewellery, which began to be different. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I love her work anyway. And I think, you know, it, it sort of, it became, it looked like a lot of fun as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think... Uh, I mean, she but, wasn't classically trained. And I think there's a lot to that. I know, sorry, Stephen, that you went and <laughs> you went to college and you spent years learning. Um, but in her way, I think she had the sort of fashion background and the costume background. And she was, she had that sense of freedom. So she could kind of do what she wanted. Yeah, and it was very refreshing. It was like a breath of fresh air, kind of swept through the industry, and a lot of the um, big fashion houses followed suit, and all the big fine jewelry brands began to think that they had to cater more for what women wanted and what they were wearing. Yeah, okay, that's very interesting. Actually, uh, another point that you made there—you um, thought you might be insulting me, but not—about <laughs> the fact that she wasn't classically trained. Um, yeah. It's quite interesting that I think. You know, you, you obviously you need people to be classically trained in, in any subject. But, but, you know, someone, there's a few cases, I think, of people who've come along into this industry and really shaken it up. I mean, yes. Jar would be another example, I think, you know, but he came yes. a, a completely different space. And I, and I think just every now and again, it kind of needs that. Otherwise, an industry kind of, it's sort of quite happy with itself. You know, you say, well, this, this is the way it's done. And then someone comes along and goes, hang on a minute, I can look at it completely differently and, and she was a perfect example jars another one i mean even to a, an extent solange you know solange has partridge you know i mean well, looking she, back there was georges schlumberger who was not classically trained there yeah. was Ilka de Vidura, um and i think sometimes they've sort of cut their teeth on costume and that gives them this sort of liberation that they don't think about the value of stones they think about the artistic merit and yeah. whether it's going to achieve what they want yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah i agree Let's go on to the new Stone Age. Yes. I think this one suggests a sort of existential look at, uh, at the sort of the bedrock, if you like, of, of uh, the Good Earth's words. crust. Good words, Stephen. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Earth's crust and, and <laughs> the journey for, you know, crystals, its power, its be the beliefs that surround it and its place in jewellery historically. I know you are going to expand on that a bit. And... Um, you know, and then, you know, into something, someone like a designer like myself, that I think I found something in it that was just about a material that, uh, you know, it, it felt like the volume of it and, and the fact that it wasn't so precious allowed me to use it in a different way. Mm. So I think uh, I'd like to know, first of all, about your, your crystal journey Okay. And, 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 and what made it sort of worthy of, of a book, a whole book from, from your book? Well, basically, this book started as an article that I did in British Vogue, January 2018. I wanted to do a story for the new year, something kind of hopeful and thoughtful. And I'm thinking, of, we all think of a new year, how to feel better. And so I did a story called The Master Healers. And um, I sort of said something witty like you know don't forget your minerals every day something like that and we photographed a lot of um, jewelry and I wrote a story and I've done a crystal reading in Los Angeles um, and actually in the course of doing this article I thought there was so much more to be said and so much more I wanted to understand and know about and I went on this kind of journey to talk to people to discover about it because I felt it wasn't a fashion and it wasn't a trend it was more of a movement a movement of people wanting to look back at how 
um, the ancients trusted and had comfort and an element of protection from the stones and crystals they used to navigate through the complexities of contemporary life with all its challenges. And I mean, it's extraordinary that it's now being um, published in the middle of this pandemic, yeah. because I talk about climate change. I talk about how young people want to use something and more drawn to something with a sense of meaning that's not only honouring the earth, which we obviously need to do now and everybody understands that is, is wanting to save the planet, but also something that they can use to, um, to help with their own private goals and um, what they want to achieve in their life and how they want to uh, have more sort of mindful responses that aren't so driven by fear and panic and that just the fast pace of the life we all live now. Yeah. So, so it's going to be quite topical. It's topical. Extreme. It's about what we're living right now. It's right in the zeitgeist. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. And I, I think where we're at right now uh, with coronavirus and you know lockdown, and obviously I think we probably have all been looking at different you know webinars and podcasts and God knows what they're dealing with the current situation, and it just feels like a lot of where we were going, whether, whether it was you know, this is some sort of act of, of God, if you like, to just say, you've got to stop because you're destroying everything. Or the fact that, you know, we, we were going this way, it was probably going to end up in some form or another without a virus where, where things were going to have to come to an end, you know, because we were taking too much. We were, you know, just spoiling everything. I think, you know, with something like the subject you're dealing with, do you, do you think that apart from this sort of the amulet side of it, does it give people a calmness? There's something about a crystal. And I mean, you mentioned before the fact that it's come out of the earth, which I think is, is really, really important that you feel connected to the earth with it. I think people look, are looking for meaning and I think they're looking for things they can trust. I thank God for um, technology while we're all in isolation um, and it, it's opened up our lives, it enables us to connect in this extraordinary way. But it's also piled so much pressure as we know on young people, their mental health. And um, I think the fact is that people are using social media as some kind of gatekeeper in their life. It, it's very untrusting. And you know, if President Trump's put anything in our life, he's put the, the idea of fake news. There's so much fake, what do we trust? Yeah. And um, I think that's driving people to look for something with meaning. And there's certainly uh, no way a stone can change you or heal you but used in um a way that you sit with it set it with intentions it can um change and alter your incentives your evaluations and, and maybe improve the outcomes of your life and um qualm the levels of anxiety that i don't believe there's anyone in the country who hasn't felt in the last month it's like panic fear anxiety depression um, all these things. And I think there's a longing out there for ritual that's been taken away from us. You know, we have no, um, no gatekeepers in our day. You know, the days are, we don't even know what day it is. It's kind of morphing into the same. And those kind of um, little temples of ritual are very important. And also that sense of nature. And I think that's why so many people have been jogging and um, trying to get into nature and, um, crystals as we know these are tiny things that you can bring into any space any small space and you have that sense of nature with you and you can carry it with you which I think is 
part of the interest and meaning in these um, in these crystals at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So let's now pull that into a jewelry. I know we've, we've yeah. kind of hit on it a little bit, but but into a kind of a you know its uses and and its place in in jewelry, because I, I think you, you kind of you know as as jeweler and as someone whose life is spent with with jewelry like yourself, it's very easy to sort of look at one side of this sort of crystal freak, <laughs> the kind of the the hippie, the the you know the 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 person who doesn't really yeah. move on, and and that type of jewelry which we we are. Uh, you know, we know exists and then, and then sort of bringing that material into something that's much more refined, I guess, you know, the use of it and, um, you know, part of something that becomes maybe more structured, which is, I know that you've done a lot of research in your book, but you probably knew a lot about it already, but sort of the, the history of that into jewelry, if you want to fill us in a little bit. Well, um, the ancient Japanese called crystal, the perfect jewel, because for them it symbolized um, space, purity, and perseverance. And um, I think there's really, really good qualities. Um, although the name crystal was uh, created by the ancient Greeks when they first came across this extraordinary frozen water. They called it crystallos because it looked like water, but it was cold to the touch and hard. So they figured it must have been frozen by the gods and something frozen by the gods would never be unfrozen. It has that sort of liquid appearance of sort of perfection. But actually, I rather like the pieces that have the inner fractures. And in those fractures, there's um, little pieces of water or liquid carbon dioxide. And it almost, um, it looks like little veins and wisps of mist and fire and smoke. And the ancient Japanese called these breath of the white dragon which I think is so romantic. Oh, yeah. yeah. And of course, forever, um, the Mayans, Aztecs, Incas have all used crystal in their um, healing rituals and put it into feel-good pieces of jewellery that people could wear and carry with them. So we were fortunate enough uh, on an earlier edition of gold digging to have a guest of Shelley von Strunkel <laughs> and um, she was really really fascinating because we sort of got her as a guest because we were talking about the astrology and you know that side of, of jewelry and then I didn't know that she was so knowledgeable about gems and gemology I didn't really think about it before but she sort of questioned this whole modern idea of what your birthstone is and how that was sort of created, if you like, by, uh, in, a, in a fairly modern time. And prior to that, you know, someone, the idea of someone's birthstone would have been much more about stones that balanced you out, which in a way is, is I think, you know, more in line with the way you're talking about a more ancient way of including crystals. The, um, the list of birthstones really came into being in the last century when George Kunz, who was the chief gemologist at Tiffany, um, came up with it and so it's a really nice thing and people like it because it adds a bit of meaning to their jewelry and it makes it very personal um, but I agree I think it's I think color is very important and I think everyone's drawn to a color and I've in the book sectioned certain stones into different colors and suggested that um, certain contemporary issues that 
we all deal with now that they might be beneficial for that and with some people's um, stories and um, experiences, their own personal experiences. Yeah, I'm going to just turn a bit into the, the way that I've used quartzes and crystals in, in my jewellery because it's been for now some time. When was the first time, Stephen? Was it 25 years ago or longer? Well, 25 years ago, we launched uh, Crystal Haze, which by name and by nature, the hero of that particular collection was, was quartz and materials that were definitely, most of them were, were sort of there in jewellery, but I think they weren't so much the hero. And, and were you aware of its energy at that moment? Were you thinking that's why you wanted to use it? No, not really. I, I, was, I was aware of it. But that wasn't what drew me to want to use, to incorporate it into my, my product. I think I'd sort of been inspired by deco jewellery and, mm -hmm. you know, pieces, um, Belperon and Cartier, are, you know, the deco period where, where there was lots of use of, of clear quartz and, you know, sometimes it was frosted and, and just different, different treatments of, of basically the quartz crystal. And, and I just thought that looked so super modern and clean. And at the time I was in a place, I was living in Canada and, and my boss, this was in the very early eighties, was a real sort of rock hound. I mean, he just loved, he was a gemologist and geologist and stuff. And it, he, he just loved to, to be sort of near uh, mineral specimens. And, and he employed me to kind of like take some of that and turn it into jewelry so so i was sort of coming at it really left field if you like from where i had been when i'd been living in london and being you know done my apprenticeship in in hatton garden and, and it was a much more formal approach to everything you know there was there was certainly some designer jewelers out there that were you know pushing the boundaries if you like of of a, a less formal type of jewelry less structured you know, Andrew Greamer probably being the, the one that uh, most sort of associated with that period. But, mm. but to be honest, he was like right out on the fringe, as you know. And I think mo most jewellery was not like that. It was really formal and you really were um, limited on, on what you could sort of use that was considered to be fine jewellery. Even if like I say, a period before, in a deco period, and way before, you know, there was many more things that were, were just jewellery. I think there was, that period was much more about diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, pearls, you know, gold, etc., platinum. And then I think just for a consumer, they probably wouldn't have been able to say, well, I'd like to see some jewellery with some, uh, you know, some falcon's eye or some quartz in it. You go, okay, well, I don't know where you'd go for that. But this guy, when I was in Canada, living in this sort of ski resort, was that guy. And he, he introduced me to, first of all, to go into Tucson, which we're going to talk about a bit later. But, mm -hmm. um, and, and just that world, it was like, wow, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to a gem dealer's gem box and looking through some rubies to incorporate into a design. This is like a world of, of uh, the new stone age, if you like, you know, everything and everything that came out of, of the, the earth's surface mainly or below it was, was on offer. And that felt like, okay, that means I can use it. So from a, from a design aesthetic point of view, you know, this sort of deco style use of, of quartz and then, and then being exposed to actually to the material 
And certainly at that time, and, and to a certain extent now, you know, you, you haven't got quite the restrictions of the preciousness of it. And I think all these things felt like you could let go of it and, and use it in a way that you would never have been able to use um, a more precious gemstone. Mm. And I think they, they were the things that to me, you know, I wanted to start to bring into my jewelry. And so way before 25 years ago, we're now talking like more like 40 years ago, I was using it, but, but it was, wasn't until I kind of started this idea of this extreme doublet, which became a, a crystal haze that I really went for it. And, and then discovered that by doing something that was a little bit out of the box, that there was, there was a client for that. It was just something that came to me by chance, but then, then I was able to adapt it into a way that I think started to look like something that was, well, it certainly became fashionable. I don't know if I started it thinking it was going to be. It was completely different, but it, it started to head into a place where it was probably, you know, like mid-90s where women were starting to venture into a jewellery space and make their own purchases. be interesting to see for your new collection if some of the clients are different and whether A, they're younger, B, they have this um, idea of, of what they also want from the crystal, not just the, the decorative effect, but they also want some, some sort of protective effect or they're looking for something that has that little extra meaning to them. Yeah, well, I hope so. Hmm. I think for all the reasons that we've, we've hit upon with, with your book and, you know, this sort of where we sit right now, that I think people will be looking for that from almost anything. <laughs> they're going yeah, yeah. to be looking for the extra bit, which, which will probably be the reason why someone might make a, a choice about what it is they buy, you know, and, and I... I'm very hopeful, of course, without being too commercial here, that, that you know, with using these kind of materials that, that feel earthly and historically come with these sort of extra benefits, if you like, that that might be the reason why someone might say, oh, well, actually, I, you know, I, I'm, I need a ring, whether it's a gift, a purchase, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's definitely something that is shifting again in, in the jewellery place of, of what people, what their requirements are of the jewellery they wear, I think, you know, and that's... I think people will be buying quite differently after this. I think um, how they're going to want something with, as I say, more meaning, something more special. I think something that um, they're going to be shopping more mindfully, I think, and, and probably want to know more about how it's made and feel very involved. I think it's got to have that real personal attachment. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And, and something else you said, you know, this idea of imperfection being mm. celebrated as opposed to it's an imperfection. I think the fact is something's a treasure from the earth. You want it to see part of that journey because they've had this extraordinary journey, which is what gives them this sort of sense of magic is that they've survived these upheavals, geological shifts, erosions, um, some of them for you know, millions of years, some not, not so long, but they've still had this extraordinary journey. And you want some element of that. You want the acknowledgement of that. And that is in its, um, its own journey is reflected in its 
chemical composition, its color, some of those inclusions, which sounds like an imperfection, but it isn't. It's its story, which makes it this sort of natural treasure. Yeah, and I think some of the sort of newer designers that, that have come along and sort of saying, well, okay, that diamond, that's clear, it's nice, it's sparkly, but this one's got bits in it. That looks really, really interesting, you know. But it's not necessarily someone from outside the industry. I think what you've got now is a generation of, of younger designers that, that just don't want to abide by those rules and, and their clients are exactly the same. You know, I mean, one of the, the, the designers that came through my um, Rock Vault platform, you know, which is sort mm-hmm. of for emerging talent, Rachel Boston, you know, her, her father had been a diamond dealer. So she'd come from sort of a diamond family and he would have been very much in the conventional, you know, what that means to be a diamond dealer, which would have conformed to these, you know, the categorization of what a diamond is from perfect to not quite. And, and the only stones she was using are the ones that were heavily, heavily included, you know, to the point where a stone is kind of now grey <laughs> through inclusion. Not after she graduated through Rockville, I went round to her little store in, um, in Shoreditch and she was having a roaring trade. I mean, she said to me, I'm making at the moment, I've got 29 engagement rings I'm making and every single one of them was about one of these stones. Forget the perfect bit. They wanted that because that became their stone. And, and I think even before that, didn't we have Jacqueline Cullen in Rock Vault? And yeah, Jacqueline, yeah, no, I, I'm well, not, I just used her as an example. Yeah, yeah but yeah. she used Jet, Whitby Jet, and yeah. it's incredibly notoriously hard to work with. And yeah. it often had lots of fractures in it. So they were highlighted as something extraordinary and special as part of her design. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and what amazing work she does. <laughs> Yeah, so I've got a couple of bits here. I've got, I've got a, I'm going to lead into Tucson and I've got this piece of, look at this, looks like a piece of coconut ice. Um, and it's, um, it's pink opal. It's Peruvian. Uh, it's got a lovely crust on the outside there. And um, I bought an oil drums worth of this <laughs> in Tucson from a Peruvian miner. And um, I think when I brought it back, because the oil drum's a lot, isn't it? It's like a big lump of material. And I, I think my brother, you know, I work with Dave, he's like, what are we going to do with that? I said, well, look, you know, don't worry, we'll get through it. Um, and the fact is we did get through it because when I started to incorporate that, you know, like I say, it couldn't feel more, you know, that you've chipped a bit off the old block of, of the earth's crust, if you like. And um, we started to put it in crystal haze and, and it has a lovely name. This Peruvian pink opal, somebody named it angel skin. You go, all right, well, there you go. That, that's a great name. And um, it just became a massive success. You know, it was this, it, no one really knew what it was. But how do you know what it is, Stephen, when you're buying, like, a bar, you know, having been to Tucson with you, yeah. and I see some of these guys, yeah. and they're there with this great barrel of emeralds or whatever they've got. How do you know? How do you know where it's come from? Yeah, well, I, trust me, I've had my moments there. I, I never forget negotiating with a Moroccan guy with one eye, and I was looking in his one eye, saying, you are you're promising me this is what it is because <laughs> sometimes it's really difficult to tell but i think on the whole um 
yeah, there's tr there's always trust in in everything, you know, no matter what. But if you are if you turn up at a place like Tucson, you've been there, you are not being taken for a ride. You are seeing these rocks as they are. Now, the skill, I think, is not so much, you, you know, saying, do you know what that is? It's about how can I use it? You know, I mean, is this something that, that there's a place, like I've, I've got another piece of, um, this is hematite, which, you know, it couldn't get more bloody gnarly looking. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing glamorous about that. But, but when, when it's in a piece of my jewelry, it looks really glamorous. It's amazing. And I, I think that's, that's sort of my 40 years of looking at rocks, if you like, to, to think, you know, I know what I can do with that. But, but buying it in that way, and, and I think I've certainly seen, and, and you, you've experienced it as well now, that looking at that, that as a source for sophisticated, modern, designed jewellery is, you know, certainly over the last five years, there's been a shift towards that kind of material, you know, and, and now with, with the big, you know, fashion houses, conglomerates, you know, I mean, last year, Gucci Group were there, you know, it means it, it, everybody's now looking this way. I, I don't think they, they certainly with, from that, that area, there wasn't, the focus and what I was so impressed by I met so many guys who were you know mining things like Montana sapphires and all these kind of small artisanal miners through the states you know represented there and when you talk to them their whole passion was to leave the earth better you know some of them were going to old mines that had been left in the 60s and disastrous states and they were actually finding gems but also cleaning up the earth yeah. And I thought wherever you went, people were so aware and talking about that, which was great. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think the fact that, you know, with, with most of those people, like you, you were sort of saying there, you, you, you're dealing with the person who brings it out of the ground on the whole. You know, you're not, you're not going to an office and there's several layers of buying and that's gone on between you and the product. When, you, when you're buying this type of material and at a place like Tucson, you the guys have got dirty fingernails you know i mean you know, sure they, they spend the rest of the the year down a hole if i go back to those sort of 25 years and more things like chrysoprase uh chalcedony um they were sort of readily available you know you you could kind of go and you get a beautiful lump of, of really beautiful uh, green chrysoprase might be from australia or or new zealand or somewhere where it's mined and and or, or in Africa and, and you know, you could buy a lump and you'd buy it by the kilo and it was affordable because I didn't have a lot of money. I could, I could afford to buy it and then come back and play with it, you know, and that is almost all gone now. You know, it's kind of, you, you sort of realize that there's, um, that these things, it doesn't matter if they're not the highest value, intrinsic value to, to, to us. It, it, they are finite, you know, and, um, mm. and that becomes really apparent when you go to a place like Tucson, but where you feel like there's an abundance of everything. It doesn't matter. It's just a rock, you know, you can go and find something like a falcon's eye. And then the next time you go and say, oh, wow, I haven't seen any falcon's eye for 10 years. It's really annoying if, if you want to uh, do a collection that you need it, but sometimes you just have to go, you know what, you can't get that anymore. 
Yeah, these things are rare. And I think that's also why some of the big houses, you know, Cartier's always had that history with colour and history with um, incorporating different stones. And as you talked about the Art Deco period, particularly. But I think recently they've all been turning to some of these hard stones, rose quartz, lapis lazuli, um, malachite. And um, I think part of it is to get large, perfect gemstones. It's very difficult and they are rare. So I think to widen their color palette, a lot of them are looking at, at these stones now to incorporate into their jewelry to get that extraordinary range of color. Yeah, I, I was going actually just to sort of finish up on that a bit. I didn't really ask you about your experience. You hit on it a little bit, but you came to Tucson two years ago. Yeah. And uh, I met with you there and we, I had one day with you. I know you, you were there for longer. So what were you expecting to find and, and did you find it? And, and or, or was it completely different? Um, Tucson was incredible because it's everything. It's just from those absolutely vast 80 carat perfect sapphires down to little bits of tiny sort of specks of emerald or ruby or strange stones or kinds <laughs> of poo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mean, yeah. fossils, um, anything that, you know, is, is old from the earth is celebrated and it's there, anything you can find, even a sort of entire dinosaur virtually. And the great spears and spikes of rock crystal were the extraordinary pieces for me. Um, yeah. and, and the characters and the characters who, who bought them and found them and, um, and that everyone there has got that in common. They've got that love of stone and crystal in common. And, you know, I went from meeting all the retailers, um, having, you know, line dancing and tequilas, to um, sitting with the Smithsonian, who were then buying to add to their collection. And I think Jeffrey Post of the Smithsonian um, was the person really who underlined that in the... Um, museum, the, the natural specimens are the biggest um, change agent they have in the museum that he said, what's the point of having all these specimens on show if we don't actually change the way we people think when they look at them? And Sorry, what, what do you mean by change element? What? Well, that he said they were so thought provoking that they're oh, the things that right. yeah. really that um, fascinated people most when they come to the museum oh, yeah. and propel them to think differently about the world yeah. and the world around them, as well as themselves. Yeah. Now, it's, uh, I mean, I'm not a collector of mineral specimens, but I know lots of people who are. And in fact, I, I once had to deliver a specimen, I forget what it was, it was such a long time ago, but I delivered from this guy I worked for in Canada, he had a specimen that the Natural History Museum in London bought, and I, um, I had to deliver it, I brought it back with me and did all the, the duty and, and delivered it there, and I, and I think at that time, because it was probably in the early 80s, I'd, I'd never even visited the mineral hall. You know, if I went to the Natural History Museum, I went to see the dinosaurs, uh, you know, I'd have been a kid, if you like, and then I'm not in there, and I mean, since then I've been to Smithsonian, I've seen lots of, of mineral halls and specimens and gem halls, but they are, they're absolutely mind-blowing. And I mean, there's one particular booth in, in Tucson where they've got, they've just got the most exquisite ones that you can't imagine that this thing sort of came out of a place in the earth. You know, you just think, no, someone must have put that one together. You know, there's these bright yellow that almost looked like something that's um you know grown as a like a plant like a flower blooms and you go well there's a daffodil and these things look like that but they're crystals of course they have grown 
but over a period of you know millions of years in it in a in a place that allowed them to grow by the fact that there was the elements there but they're everybody would be fascinated by them you, you i don't think you could leave it and not have an emotion about seeing yeah. some of the spectacle of it and and the beauty of, of what that is i've I'm got sure that's what made people think um early on that looking into crystal and seeing this fairy frost inside and almost the wispy smoke that made patterns that they imagined they could see the future. I'm sure that was where the whole kind of crystal gazing came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it um, sort of ignites something in your imagination totally. It's quite funny, isn't it? I've, I've spoken to you about it before, but that idea of, you know, a crystal ball, looking into it and, see, and seeing either somebody's past or future, let me gaze into my crystal ball. Can we not do that in the new Crystal Haze pieces then, Stephen? <laughs> Just gaze into them. Oh, trust me, I do a lot of that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And what colours have you used with them? Well, I've, yeah, I've tried to sort of revisit um, what gave it a uniqueness 25 years ago. Because I think, like a lot of things, you, you sort of, you start one way. With, a, with maybe a rawness, um, you know, you just, this is new and you go about it in a certain way. And um, I couldn't stop. You know, I'm like, once, once I'd kind of perfected that this technique was going to work and that I had this whole, you know, colour palette that was available to me because now anything that had a colour that I felt, you know, if it was magnified under this quartz was, was going to, it was worth a shot. Not everything worked, but a lot of it did, you know. So, you know, turquoise was, was one that I used a lot. And then the hematites and falcon's eye, which is this sort of dark blue tiger's eye, beautiful stone and, and, um, and tiger's eye. And so many things, silver obsidian, um, different opals. And um, I think over, that was like initially, and, and I think I'd, I'd mentioned before about chrysoprase and, and chalcedony. And some of those I just can't replicate, you know, because that material is just not, it's just not enough of it for me to be able to say, because I, I need quite a lot of volume of, of material to make crystal haze stone. And so I, I sort of, over the years, sort of start to do what a lot of people do. You kind of get driven a bit by merchandising, you know, so you say, oh, well, let's, let's narrow down what, what we make available because otherwise there's too many skews involved and it goes against everything I I, I think we should be doing, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's the way it works. And I, I think now with this 25 year celebration, it's to, we sort of come back and, and looked at what's okay. What is possible? You know? And, and so when I was preparing for it two years ago, I was with you in Tucson. I was like, right, I just want to see everything that I can work with. So Falcon's eye, hematite, silver obsidian, um, the uh, different opals, bullseye. I've, I've got a lot. I've got a whole color palette. And um, I want people to be part of the process of discovering what that means when it's in a piece of my jewelry. You know, I mean, I won't be the only one using those materials, but I, I might be the only one using some of that stuff that's out there on the fringes. I'm not too familiar with that much jewelry that has silver obsidian in it, you know, because it's, it's beautiful on its own, 
but it really comes to life when, when it's used as a, in a crystal haystone. I want it to feel surprising to people because it was surprising 25 years ago. So it'll be now to a, to a new generation and, uh, and see, see how that the reaction is. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So when does your book come out? Um, it's just come out in the FT and How to Spend It magazine. Oh, right. And it's pre-ordering on Amazon. Um, but it's basically on Barnes & Noble, any bookstore. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. All of your books have, have all been very, very interesting and delving beyond the obvious, I think, in, in jewellery. But uh, this one will be of particular interest to me. Thank you so much. You've been a great guest, Carol. I knew you would be. Been Thank you for having me, and I hope I see you. We will meet again, Stephen. We will. We don't know where, don't know <laughs> when. <laughs> but we'll meet again some sunny day. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Carol.